Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Introducing Wondersuite from bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in Santa Monica, the heart of Silicon Beach. Please be seated. We've got a great show for you today. We have a, a repeater, um, our distinguished um, University of Miami law professor and Cyber Civil Rights Initiative Vice President, Mary Ann Franks, is joining us from Miami, I believe, and um, where it's uh, hopefully everyone's recovered from the hurricane. And um, but we are going to be talking about the state of cyber exploitation and um, on as well as maybe some issues of fundamental. But, um, Marianne, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you for joining us. You know, we, you were you when you last spoke. I was looking at the sh- on the show. I was looking at the show notes, and only a handful of states had actually passed laws dealing with revenge porn at that point. And now we're up to thirty four. Um, so it seems like a lot is, there's been a lot of progress at the state level, um, since we last spoke. There has been, there's really been a a flurry of legislative activity. And as you say, now we're up to 34 states, um, as well as Washington, DC. 
And Congress is also getting finally sort of in on this issue and has introduced, we've now introduced a, a federal bill as well. So let me just back up. So you, and uh, tell me a little bit about the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative and your role. Because when we were talking about 34 states, um, how many of those states have you actually gone to and testified? Because I've, I've seen, seen you at several. That's right. So there's been probably in terms of actual direct testimony, probably a half a dozen or so. In other states, what I've done is kind of a, a background legislative drafting role. So we start with the templates that the lawmakers have, they're sent to me and they're asked, I'm asked to give my opinions about how it should be worded, what types of issues have arisen in other jurisdictions. And so probably for about 25 or 26 of the, the laws that have been passed, I've played some sort of role in the, the draft. So and, and the cyber purpose of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative is? So the purpose of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative is to challenge online abuse and discrimination. And our particular focus has been, since our inception in 2013, has been to focus on the issue of non-consensual pornography. But our broader agenda really is all forms of online abuse and discrimination. And so there seems to be a kind of a, a looming battle or a, a developing um, attack line and we saw that in Rhode Island, mm-hmm. um, where you know the ACLU actually led a fight against the bill, and the, the state's first female governor, um, who also went to my high school, um, and became the first governor to veto a revenge porn law. Um, why, don't you, why don't you tell us about that? Right. That was an extremely disappointing event. What you had in Rhode Island was um, some very dedicated lawmakers, very smart people working on this bill and had been working. The attorney general had been trying to address this issue for years. And in the, in this particular year, there was a very narrowly, carefully drafted law that had gone through several different iterations that was passed by the state legislature almost unanimously. It's a really both in terms of its effectiveness and protectiveness, but also in terms of how sophisticated it is um, in terms of making sure that it comports with the First Amendment. And so everything seemed to be on track for this bill to be passed and for for victims in Rhode Island to actually have some chance for justice. And sort of at the 11th hour, the ACLU and various other organizations basically launched an attack, um, an appeal, direct appeal to the governor, asking her to veto this law and on some very specious grounds the kind of, I guess, the bottom line or the impression they were trying to give was that there was some First Amendment problem with the bill. We looked at their criticisms quite carefully, and and they're the same criticisms that the ACLU has made in the past. None of them really have any merit, and they're not really about the First Amendment. And yet, for some reason, the governor found this compelling, and she did, in fact, veto the bill. And what's interesting is basically the... um the ACLU was trying to say that um, the legislation needed to provide exceptions when dissemination of authorized image, images was in the public interest. And I think they were trying to make the argument that this law could somehow um, make photographs like Abu Ghraib, um, you know, publishing those or publishing the such as the, um, the, the napalm girl mm-hmm. in Vietnam, that, that somehow that would be rendered illegal. And what was interesting was that the Rhode Island legislation um, had greater protection than what, what is currently in place in California. 
um, and, and tracked the model legislation that you guys drafted. Um, but nonetheless, you know, that, that seemed to be the, the, what, what we have in place in California now for several years but it was, was somehow deemed inadequate and led to a, governor, a gubernatorial veto. Right. And then again, this is why this was so particularly surprising was the fact that it is certainly right that whenever you're trying to craft a good law on an issue like this, there are so many things you need to consider, including the possibility for unintended consequences for the statutes to be read too broadly, for them to be used in a discriminatory fashion. And much to the lawmakers credit in Rhode Island, they had really thought about all of those issues. And as you say, had actually carved out quite a number of very thoughtful exceptions, including images that were disclosed and that that public concern. So what the ACLU really seems to be saying, in effect, is nothing is good enough, right? So even if there is an explicit exception in the law that says this doesn't apply to issues that are newsworthy or a public concern, the ACLU still says this is not okay because you couldn't, a newspaper or an outlet wouldn't know for sure in advance because public concern and newsworthiness are they can be controversial, not entirely clear concepts. But of course, that's how laws work, right? I mean, there's no way to tell in advance how a particular concept is going to play out. That's what courts are for. And the the idea, the test for whether or not that defeats a, a statute's constitutionality is not, can we think of bad effects? Or is there any possible chance that this could be used in a way that might inhibit certain organizations from talking about this, well, there's always a chance, but mere speculation is never enough. And the fact that the ACLU seems utterly unconcerned with the legitimate sweep of the statute, which is, in fact, to prosecute or knowingly disseminating these types of um, photos, knowing that they will harm or hurt these victims, um, it seems as though the ACLU is only ever concerned about one side of the equation and turns that a bare speculation about possible bad consequences and seems to think that that's the only thing that might matter. And, and it's interesting, the um, the Speaker of the House, Nick Mattiello, said, uh, I'm extremely disappointed the governor vetoed an important tool to protect victims of sexual exploitation. I'm surprised because I raised any concerns during the four months that it was under consideration by the House. We passed the bill 68 to 1, which would have given the victims of sexual exploitation, some common sense protection against increasingly shocking violations of privacy on the internet. Um, you know, so one, there was the issue of wh- why wasn't this raised with, when the bill was pending, or you know, well, at least raised persuasively. Um, but now, is, is, is there any likelihood you guys can have a workaround? The the really alarming things about what happened. If the ACLU intends to talk in good faith about issues it has with legislation, of course, the right time to do it is not after the legislature has actually passed a bill and is going up to the governor for signature. If these were legitimate complaints, if these are legitimate critiques, they should have been introduced much um, in advance. One suspects that actually that doesn't seem to be what the ACLU is after, that they know that they can create a kind of public relations issue that isn't necessarily on substance and that that might have an effect on on certain, unfortunately, on certain uh, politicians who haven't really researched the issue and may just not have the adequate background to process what's, now, what's at stake. Do you think that they're trying to tar um, this movement as being anti-First Amendment? I think so, and I and I have hesitated to say that in the past because you never know, based on maybe isolated incidents, if if you can say that about what an organization is doing. And the ACLU does so much tremendously good work. Um, on other issues. And I think that's important always to say, but 
it now seems quite clear now that there have been several years of this work and there have been several states and several efforts that the ACL's position, ACLU's position has been, I think, very much in bad faith. I think that they know that they don't have solid constitutional arguments against these laws. What they have are policy objections, which are perfectly acceptable for one to have. But they've managed to, and they have deliberately attempted to confuse like about the differences between those two. And their policy objections have gotten, they put them behind the shield of the First Amendment, which makes people want to believe that somehow these statues violate freedom of speech. And if, if one doesn't know First Amendment doctrine very well, if, if we're not an expert in constitutional law, that sounds bad, right? If, if you, if you right. throw an accusation of, oh, this is against free speech, it's, it's obviously very you know, easy to get people to believe that. That puts you on the defensive. Yes. And um, if, I actually recently communicated with um, Speaker Mediello um, for two purposes. One, to tell him that he better be at our high school reunion on <laughs> on Saturday. And, and two, that I hope he passes something very quickly when the legislature comes back. But, you know, the ACLU move was strategic because the bill is now going to Congress. And Jackie Spear introduced a bill earlier this year. And so now it's a different discussion. Um, And are they still trying to make the point in Congress um, that this is not a a First Amendment-friendly bill? And is that um, gaining traction? Well, this is where it, in fact, does get interesting because when the bill was introduced uh, over the summer, so Representative Spear introduced it during this press conference, and there was support, as you know, from a wide group of, of scholars and advocates, organizations, including people who are, quite frankly, experts on the First Amendment. So we have Erwin Chemerinsky saying there's no First Amendment problem with this bill. Right. Other scholars who are really, really prominent scholars um, whose you know, constitutional uh, credentials really cannot be impeached in any way who are saying, no, you know, you may or may not like this bill, but it's not a First Amendment problem that you can have with this bill. Right. You so, even had Eugene Bullock, who, right, um, right. who actually has supported some levels of uh, harassment. So, um, yeah, that, that, that was an achievement. Right. And so I think that that's going to make it interesting. But the problem is, of course, that, you know, you can have experts who say, this is this is our read of a, of a particular issue, and that doesn't mean that the general public or some politicians will necessarily heed that. Right? We're, we're not exactly living in a golden era for expert um, information. So, the, the troubling thing is, is that the ACLU may nonetheless, in spite of all this pretty compelling evidence by and experts, that this is not um, this, this bill does not create the First Amendment problems that, that it is saying that it creates, it will be interesting to see if they will nonetheless try to, to say um, that somehow the few people at the ASOU who are handling this issue somehow know more or better than any of this wide range of, of groups of people, including members of the tech industry who are usually heavily skeptical about any legislation that might impact their responsibility or liability. We've got you know, Facebook and Twitter saying they support this bill, not only that they're not going to fight it or that they don't like it, but that they support it. Right. All the constitutional law experts, I think it becomes increasingly, um, it's a very discredited position that the ACLU is taking, but that won't necessarily stop them from taking it. But it's, it's curious because you know, looking at who's behind it. So you have, uh, you mentioned Facebook, you have Twitter, um, you have Nationalization for Women, Feminist Majority, Girls Inc., um, Internet Law Center. 
um, and um, National Democratic Institute, um, and obviously the CCRI, um, Information Technology Innovation Foundation. And then, you know, you have Jackie Spear, who um, was one of the pioneers in internet policy when she was in, um, in Sacramento. Um, you have Catherine Clark as a sponsor, who has been a major fighter in her brief time so far in Congress on issues of cyber harassment. Um, and I have to give a shout out to one of your Republican sponsors, um, John Kako, who um, years ago we actually shared a secretary. And he's uh, a freshman congressman from a conservative district and um, you know, taking a stand on an important issue. And so um, I applaud him for his bipartisanship. And um, and so you, but it doesn't. Despite that, there's been no hearings. Um, no one else has joined to sign up on legislation. I actually asked my congressman, you know, when how come he hasn't endorsed and signed on as a sponsor, Ted Lieu, and uh, you know, in a, in a tweet, and I haven't heard back. So, um, what what? I mean, granted, it came out midway through a Congress during election year, so um, you know you may not expect a whole lot to happen. But um, are you are you surprised that nothing has happened? Well, I think that timing does have a has a, a big role here, and that I think that the plan is to put this back on the stage when things maybe have calmed down a little bit um, in terms of our current political climate. So I think that that probably does account for a lot of, at least I I hope that that's that's mostly what we're thinking about. But I do think it's probably also a testament to the fact that the the sort of the tarring process, right, that the ACLU has engaged in, the sense of apprehension that it's managed to cope on this issue about freedom of speech is, is probably part of this. I think that, again, it it takes some dedication and some time to figure out what exactly is happening. And if you are not somebody who has the time or, or the ability to do that, then you can obviously um, be easily swayed by people who are suggesting that there's a, a problem. Um, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking more with Marianne Franks on this very important issue. You're listening to Cyberlong or only on cranberry.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Literature is taking over Miami streets. Between November 13th and the 20th, downtown Miami will transform into a full week celebration of the literary arts. More than 500 plus authors are coming to share their new work at the 2016 Miami Book Fair. The porch is open every evening complete with a full schedule of live music and performances, a farmer's market and cafe, food trucks, craft beer, and more. For more information on the 33rd Miami Book Fair, November 13th to the 20th at Miami-Dade College's Wolfson Campus in downtown Miami, call 305-237-3258 or visit miamibookfair.com. Follow Miami Book Fair on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Miami Book Fair. Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. At Fjorge, our website maintenance experts can help you assess which one of our maintenance plans will best support your needs. 
visit FjordDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E Digital.com. Cranberry Radio, online anytime at cranberry.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back and we're talking to University of Mining Law Professor Marianne Franks. And she's talking about um, her efforts to pass revenge porn or cyber exploitation legislation, um, both at the state and federal level. Um, before the break, we were talking about the introduction of um, the bill by Jackie Spear, H.R. 589, the Intimate Privacy Protection Act. Now, you were there at the press conference announcing the introduction of the bill. Uh, that must have been quite an experience. It really was a remarkable experience. Representative Spear wanted to have not only experts, but also victims to speak at the press conference to really talk about the severity of the conduct and then to demonstrate or help demonstrate the need for congressional action on this issue. So it was such a, it was such an honor, right, to really be in this place with the people that I've worked with for several years, because the victims who have come forward and been brave enough to take their stories forward and to work on these issues for so long, um, it's, it's a great sense of pride that I have that I've been able to work with, with some of them and that they were able to see that there is this, at least there is this attempt on the part of Congress that there are some members of Congress who are listening and they were there that day, you know, Republicans, Democrats, both really be able to stand up and say this, we are hearing you. It was a, it was really a a very poignant and I think very important moment, at least for me personally, to see democracy working that way. And, and so one of the people you're referring to is your, um, the president of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, Holly Jacobs. And, I'm looking at a tweet by Jackie Spear that talking has a photo of Holly speaking to the press conference, mentioning that you know when the, her photos were first posted that she played suicide. Right. Right, so, and this is a, a common a common experience of many of the victims who face this because it is, as you know, it, it isn't just the fact that it happens to them; it's also the response that they get that when they go to the police or when they tell their family or. When they talk to politicians about it, if the answer is, this is your own fault, it's not a crime, it's not a big deal, that sense of dismissal and trivialization and lack of acknowledgement of what has happened to them after they are able to gather the resources and the bravery to come forward and talk about it, it's, it's been devastating for victims. And this was such an important counterpoint to all of that. Now, one thing I, I found important here in California is um, Attorney General Kamala Harris has really made that a priority. And um, she was out here, and then she actually had a press conference with Daniel Citron, um, your your colleague, and um, to talk about it, uh, it was her office was making um, to educate law enforcement about this. And you know, I found it very useful. You know, she created a, a bulletin. Um, for law enforcement on this issue. And every time, you know, I talk to a client and I tell them to talk to the police, I tell them to print this bulletin, you know, Mm -hmm. so that right away, you know, here's a tool. Um, This really is a crime. This is really something serious. 
Right. Attorney General Harris has done so much terrific work on this on this issue, Daniel Citron and so many others. And right now, I think especially we're at this moment where we see that there are state legislators willing to pass statutes on this issue. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not so good. But in any event, law enforcement has to be well informed about the changes in the law and they have to know how they can actually go about prosecuting, investigating these these cases effectively. And so it's so important not to just say, pass a law and leave it behind, but to say, let's talk about how this is actually going to work in practice. And that is very important. Do you find that other attorney generals have, have, have been as effective as she has in this? Well, I think that uh, the Attorney General Harris is really a model for uh, for the way that this should work and the way that the process could work if you really have dedication to this issue and deep understanding of it. I don't think she's alone by any means, but I do think she's one of the most high profile and most thoughtful people who are who has taken this issue uh, really head on and is really trying to make sure that whatever laws get passed are good laws, first of all, but also make sure we're having a larger conversation about all the steps um, that are necessary to be able to challenge this type of behavior from making sure that victims understand what their rights are to making sure that law enforcement understands how it is that they can go about investigating these types of abuse appropriately. Now, right now, the Intimate Privacy Protection Act is strictly in the House. Um, it, it could be quite possible, in fact, extremely likely that come January, you'll have a, a new friend in the Senate in Kamala Harris. Um, what, where does the bill stand in the Senate now? Well, it seems as though there are many people in the Senate who are interested in running a similar bill there. There have been some ups and downs in terms of trying to figure out where the House was going to go when that bill was going to really take shape. So I think that what we're looking at is, as you say, I think in the next few months, we're going to be able to see more clearly exactly who it is will want to be the sponsor and who else will sign on. But there seems to be a lot of And do you you think there will be any action after the election or this is strictly a next Congress thing? I think we're probably looking at a next Congress type of thing just because it seems, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a highly emotional issue. I think in some ways for people, it's a contested issue in some ways. Um, It shouldn't be, I think, I mean, it's, it's privacy legislation of a type that ought to be easily perceived by people on both sides of the aisle as being an easy issue. But unfortunately, currently in a political climate where nothing is easy or obvious it's it, it, it's odd and i yeah you know, i've brought it i've been at meetings with um you know politicians you know doing the neighborhood town meeting thing and i brought it up and people kind of gasp like oh my god what are you talking about this sounds you know impolite and and then you explain to them what it is and like oh that's awful we should do something about it but you know there is this initial distance like oh i don't know let someone else take care of that (laughs) i think that's right uh there's there's a there's a difficulty in talking about the issue because as a general matter people get anxious about conversations that touch on sexual behavior right uh, it's just something that people don't want to talk about and to some extent this is an issue that um has been um, undermined in some ways by the fact that people assume that something like displaying naked pictures of people without their consent lots of people thought the law. So we're kind of fighting against the impression that many people assume that the law would make this a crime already. And, and many people don't understand that actually, you know, for reasons of either ha- not having thought about it um, well enough or, or other reasons, we don't have the laws on the books that many people just kind of assume that we did. Now, in, in California, I know some other states have sex offender registries. 
And I, I noticed that the model law doesn't require um, registration as a sex offender because this is usually a misdemeanor, not a felony. But do you think you know, whether it's whether it's even temporary or not? Um, that should be an element as to create a greater deterrent? It's a tricky issue, partly because, at, le- at least in my view, the sex offender registry doesn't do what it should be doing. If, In other words, if the sex offender registry were a very, very careful registry, that is to say, made it absolutely clear that there are certain types of antisocial, pathological behaviors that would make a person eligible to be on the registry and be... Mm-hmm and actually be able to effectively demonstrate that rather than what we have, which is a sex offender registry that makes very little distinction between things that many people don't consider to be even criminal, much less um, uh, that wouldn't consider to be unethical, much less criminal. All statu- the way to, um, right. Statutory rape, some, some forms of statutory rape, some forms of uh, public intoxication that resulted in people exposing themselves um, in the middle True. of, if we have a sex offender registry that doesn't make clear distinctions between someone who urinated in public and someone who abused a five-year-old, then it's not doing a very good job of communicating what we'd want it to communicate. And we know that the consequences of being on that registry can be so severe and counterproductive that this is one of the reasons why CCRI has not recommended that this necessarily be part of the of the way that we think about the, um, the crime. That being said, if appropriate to think about the crime as a sex offense, which some states have done and other states have not. Because if we want to think about what we should be really concerned about when it comes to sexual uh, misconduct, it's it's the types of sex that are non-consensual. It's the, the, the sort of pathological inability to recognize that other human beings have rights and to simply, because of your own interest in entertainment or, or money or revenge or whatever it might be, that you're willing to act this way. I mean, it does, I think, set you up as somebody who's really... Now, revenge porn or cyber exploitation it hasn't been addressed, and in partly in some of the same reasons, um, cyber harassment often isn't addressed. Is is the victims are, are largely women, and do you believe that that's part of the factor? I think it has to be part of the factor. If we're, if we're looking at the history of, of criminalization and of offenses in this country, at least, we just have a terrible long history in this country of trivializing the types of things that tend to happen to women more than men, and especially the types of things that men tend to do more um, to women than any other any other formulation. So if we're looking at everything ranging from domestic violence to rape to sexual harassment or street harassment, we have a terrible time in this country recognizing that when these types of things, abuses they're serious and they need to be condemned and they need to be deterred. We just, it took us a long time to even acknowledge formally in our law that some of these things were a problem. And even when they're acknowledged in the law, we have a terrible time actually enforcing them because we have law enforcement sometimes that simply doesn't care or we don't put the resources into looking into these types of crime. And we just tend to think of the things that men do to women as being overwhelmingly sort of excusable. So we have to get rid of that um, impression. We have to get rid of that idea of the going to keep having this problem, whether it's revenge porn or sexual assault or anything else, we're going to continue to have this problem if we don't confront the social attitudes that say that it's acceptable for men to use women sexually without their consent. And you being uh, in the foreground on these issues, does that make you a lightning rod um, 
for those who are, I guess, anti-woman or um, somewhat misogynistic? Probably. I think probably any woman with an opinion becomes a kind of lightning rod for that. So I certainly am in good company. But I think there are a lot of different, I guess you could say there are a lot of different people uh, it could be because that people are anti-woman, that they're overtly misogynist, that they take issue with a lot of these things. It could be because they have misguided perceptions about freedom or about uh, what it means to have a right to, to expression or a right to privacy. But I do think that any woman especially, but, but any person up issues that do disproportionately affect women, they do become lightning rods. And that is one of the sadder statements on our current society, I think. And it, it, it's interesting, we've had this very disturbing election, and um, there are times we hear about what is known as the Trump effect, that that somehow it seems to have an enabled or um, licensed um, behavior that maybe a year ago people would have been somewhat reluctant. Seeing that at all in this arena, in terms of, you know, um, you know, the treatment of women or or conversely has the exposure of, you know, Trump's behavior in terms of, you know, his um, bragging about sexual assault, has, has that actually um, had an educational effect? Right. I think it's had sort of both. It's had this negative and this positive effect. I think on the one hand, one of the most things that's come out of this whole um, sexual assault conversation that we've all kind of found ourselves in because of Donald Trump's actions has been the, the difference between people who think that there's something, that this is no more than racy talk, right? That we don't seem to know the difference between racy talk and sexual assault. And that was really alarming, I'm not surprising, but I would say alarming to a lot of people that that is not or should not be a difficult line to draw. We're not talking about whether or not someone's ever used profanity or whether or not they've ever spoken crudely. But even the descriptions of what Donald Trump was saying on that tape in the bus, for anyone to just call it dirty talk or to say it's a crude conversation is really doing violence to the English language. Um, it's right. not, that wasn't the problem, right? And so that seemed to be quite alarming. But at the same time, that's exactly the conversation that we're also able to have in a way that grabs everybody's attention because now we're talking about it, whether we like it or not. And so I think that you see parallels of that everywhere. And the reason why non-consensual pornography exists to begin with is because there are people who no difference between uh, sexual consent and and non and non consent to sexual activity, and that's incredibly alarming. That we're we're it's as though we're we're pretending that we don't know the difference between consensual behavior and not, but we do all know what the difference is. You can share as many naked pictures as you want if people consent to being shared that way, just like you can have sex with as many people as you want if people consent. But it should not be something that we have to debate or even disagree about the terms to say that's not when someone is describing grabbing something their consent or sharing a photo without their consent, we should be very clear that this isn't sex talk or sex, you know, sexual behavior. It's something quite different and it should be a crime. And in, and in both cases, you do have a certain blame the victim um, aspect to it. And you know, a couple of years ago, we had, um, you know, a, a revenge porn victim and advocate, um, Becca Wells on our show. And um, she, she has on her blog, um, Women Against Revenge Porn, segment about her being an, an involuntary porn star and um and i quote this passage from it in every com- revenge porn complaint i file um and she says that what people don't realize is that as a victim of revenge porn i am not a victim one time 
I am victimized every time someone types my name into the computer. The crime scene is right before everyone's eyes played out again and again. And ironically, I am as if I am the one who has committed the crime. I am victimized everyone, every time someone tells me it's my fault because I consented to the taking of the photos. And you, know, you just, you, and I hear that time and time again. You know, and they report something to the police officer. And the police officer says, well, why'd you take the photos? And, and a lot of times, sometimes they didn't. You know, they didn't know they were being taken or they were taken against their will. And they just, you know, don't worry, I'll, I'll get rid of them. And now they're on the Internet. Right. And, and it's it's incredible to me the way that Becco has been able to express this so um, eloquently, in spite of the fact that it takes this daily toll on her as it does take on most victims, but she puts it so beautifully. And I hope that everybody reads that because this is, a, you know, we were talking a little bit about why some people resist really doing anything about this issue and why there might sometimes be reluctant to heavily penalize this issue. I think the other answer is people are, there's obviously a, there's a there's a base out there that revenge porn is appealing to. It's not just about private agendas against uh, certain women. It's it's an industry. Revenge porn sites are very lucrative. There are people out there who take enjoyment from knowing that this woman did not agree to being seen this way, and yet you get to see her this way. And I think that that's what we also have to address, that there are people here who find this entertaining. There are people here who recognize that every time you click on Jennifer Lawrence's hacked photos, that you're doing something wrong, but you feel you can say, well, everybody else is doing it. It's okay. And we, we're not willing to confront the fact that all of us are participating to some extent in this normalization of voyeurism. Right. And that's something that we really have to confront. Now, you, you've also taken an interest in the role of violence against women because that seems to be an element of harassment and have waded into another controversial area, the Second Amendment. Um, uh, how, how, tell, tell us how you, you, you walked into that path. Well, in some ways, they're, they're very much intertwined. If, if one is studying, as I have been for over a decade, the dynamics of violence against women and girls, you inevitably have to deal with the fact that so much of that violence comes out in terms of social media and other forms of communication. But also, of course, there's this very dimension of actual physical violence against women. And so much of that, at least in the United States is intimately connected to the question of firearms. And that one of the, the stranger things that's happened in the last few decades or so is that you've had a Second Amendment movement that not only refuses to acknowledge how much, how significant the role of firearms um, happens to be in terms of perpetuating violence, perpetrating violence against women, but has actually tried to offer this narrative that, in fact, firearms will save from violence. And so it's, it struck me on many occasions that there's something very perverse about this current state of Second Amendment fundamentalism, as I like to call it, that's somewhat similar to First Amendment fundamentalism, which is people trying to tell women that, you know, these things that are actually oppressing you and harassing you and threatening you and maybe actually killing you are actually good for you. Right. I mean, I think you published some data showing that um, you know, women are to be harmed by a gun in the house um, than, than to be using it for their own protection. Right. And this has, you know, this was misinterpreted by people who are determined to misinterpret things as 
uh, being about a statement about women's skill with guns. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with acknowledging the fact that most women are going to face violence from someone that they know. And most of us are not going to have our hands on our guns um, if we happen to be sexually assaulted or um, attacked by our husband or our boyfriend. Right. We're going to take a short Come back. Um, we'll be talking more with Marianne Franks after these messages. You're listening to the Cyber Law and Business Report only on cranberry.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Literature is taking over Miami streets. Between November 13th and the 20th, downtown Miami will transform into a full-week celebration of the literary arts. More than 500-plus authors are coming to share their new work at the 2016 Miami Book Fair. The Porch is... Pick out some new favorite podcasts now at cranberry.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. And we're back and we're talking to University of Miami law professor um, Marianne Franks, who's also the vice president and legislative director for the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. Marianne, if, if people want to get involved in the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, how should they do so? Well, the easiest way to get involved is to go site um, to, to look up the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative and find out about what we do and to see what you're interested in. If you'd like to help us in terms of providing support for, for victims, if you'd like to help with legislative efforts, if you'd like to help us as we talk to tech companies and think about ways that they could address this problem. And um, the, the site is actually a very good site. It's very for, for practitioners or those seeking information on this issue. Um, it has a, a, a listing of laws involved and um, as well as um, for victims is a list of lawyers um, who handle these type of cases on there so it's a it's very much a, a resource now you you've been you're a professor at the University of Miami um, you're taking on some you know high profile and and, and at times controversial topics how, how does that play out in in, in your environment well I think for the most part, it's it's something that it seems like a sad testament um, to the state of the world. 
because I guess it could be perceived that, that these issues are controversial. Certainly it's true that reasonable people can have different ideas about certain of these issues. What seems unreasonable and really quite tragic is that we are apparently living in a time where having opinions and wanting to do work and advocacy on these types of issues generates sometimes incredibly violent responses. And that seems to be just increasing as opposed to decreasing in our uh, in our society. So it's complicated in the sense that I think, you know, it's always complicated if you're receiving death threats and rape threats as a professor or as anybody. Uh, and it's, it's, but it also is this extraordinary opportunity in some ways, because I know that it's a way for my students to see what the real stakes of the law actually are, that it sometimes can become easy for us who are studying the law to be distant from it and to talk about statutes and to form and to talk about crimes as though they all happen at one remove from us. And being able to have a voice on these issues allows me to share with my students the kinds of experiences that I've had and continue to have about what it means for the law to actually take these issues seriously. And, and how do students respond when they hear that you've had death threats or rape threats? Or I usually don't tell them about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> come, come to University of Miami where you can see your professor killed. Um, yeah, I guess that would not be a selling point. Um, but I guess um, what do you, when, when you do talk about it, what do you tell people? Well, in terms of the the threats, I think the main thing I, I want to say about them is that it, I, I want to take note of the fact that we're this is a very dysfunctional response, right? That if you have disagreements, I mean, this is the extraordinary thing about the privilege of being a an academic. We put priority on is that you can disagree about many issues. In fact, vehemently disagree about issues, uh, and you can still be civil to each other. And you certainly right. don't have to resort to threatening someone. That we learn to tolerate opposing viewpoints because that's the nature of our job and I think it's the nature of you know lawyers generally to be able to see that right that we have to be able to understand that people can have differing viewpoints and there is no excuse for then responding in a violent or aggressive fashion and so I think wish that more of the world could be like a law school classroom where you actually have to be civil and you actually have to be professional and you can't respond to a viewpoint you don't like or one that makes you uncomfortable by just, you know, screaming at somebody or threatening them with violence. And which is very true, but you know, it, it's always disconcerting when you get that threat. I mean, I've received death threats as well, probably not as many as you, but, um, you know, it, it does make you think. And, um, you know, it's definitely, um, it's not something you want to have happen. And, uh, you know, and some, I'm sure there are some days you say, well, um, you know, this really sucks and, you know, maybe I should do something else. But, you know, then at the end of the day, you think, well, no, you can't let them win. Right. I mean, especially since it seems quite clear that so much of the death threats that are or to other types of threats that are because they're trying to do that, it is. It is part of a concerted effort to try to get people to stop talking when they're saying things that are making other people uncomfortable. So if we want to talk about First Amendment implications, there are a lot, right? I mean, that threats and these types of attacks are are designed to chill speech and that we really need to take that seriously. And some of us are lucky enough or, or foolish enough to to proceed regardless. But lots of us, lots of people are vulnerable and are, are not talking because of the fear of threats and they're not sharing their experiences because of the fear of threats. And that, that is a tragic thing for freedom of speech. 
Now, in, in our little insular community of, of, I guess, academics and lawyers, um, you know, there are certain prestige um, positions or, or prestige topics, you know, constitutional law or um, privacy law. And um, I'm always mindful of a conversation I had with Daniel Citron. Um, we were at a private Dice um, Privacy um, Law Review. And just the, I was surprised about the number of people who were there and how well attended it was. And then at the, this would have been mid-2000s. And at the time, if you brought up cyber harassment, people would say, well, you know, why are you bringing that up? That's not, you know, that's not the issue right now. Let's, let's, you know, let's deal with that later. And it just seems that it doesn't get the attention. People don't want to talk about it. They, you know, go away. You know, you're infringing on free speech or you're threatening Section 230 of the Communications DC Act. You know, you're you're just troublesome. Can can we talk about this later? <laughs> and, and you know, it, it just it it seems that it somehow in you know not that to belittle the other topics and particularly privacy, but. Fond of saying, you know, show me someone who's committed suicide because there was a cookie on their desktop, um, and then maybe we can talk. But it just—it seems like there's a reluctance to want to um, address this head-on. Some levels at academia, I think that's right, and it's—it's it's a great credit to Daniel Citron who has, you know, for so long been trying to draw attention to these issues. That I think there's been a real effect because of work like hers and others who have really tried to say these things are not separate from or marginal these important issues of freedom of speech and privacy, they're actually all connected. And we can't talk about the First Amendment if we're not going to talk about the effects, silencing effects and chilling effects of harassment on um, women in particular. So I do think that that's true, that there's there's been a kind of uh, avoidance uh, or trivialization and that people like Danielle have really helped us get to a place where I think people are taking these issues much more seriously. Now, um, we only have a few minutes left. Now, in terms You've obviously um, gotten a lot of attention for um, the work you're doing in this space and particularly your, your, your recent speech at, at Drake. Um, but um, what, what, is there anything you have coming up that you, you want to bring to our attention? Well, there's a, a lot of work that I'm continuing to do. We're trying to ensure that all the states that don't have non-consensual pornography laws do have them. We're trying to encourage those that have uh, somewhat dubious or, or not Laws will actually try to reconsider and redraft some of theirs. We obviously want to do everything we can to try to get the federal bill uh, passed in, in Congress and make sure that people continue to have their awareness raised about these issues and others. And I've got an upcoming book on the effects of, of this kind of radicalization and fundamentalism that people are displaying when it comes to the First and Second Amendment. So those are, those are keeping me pretty busy. That's So um, when, might that, when might that come out? supposed to be finished by the june 2017 so i'm hoping that it's going to come out in 2018 great now um will you be doing a a lobby day or a hill blitz day for um the federal bill at the moment we're trying to plan those events we're hoping that there will be an event out west actually we want to be able to talk sort of in the, the middle of silicon valley and have an event to really reach out to the tech community there and get some get some good conversations going we've we've done similar events before we're hoping to do another one 
and then to obviously have some more events also on the Hill to make sure that everybody's aware about the significance and the importance of this legislation. And um, there's background on the legislation as well as uh, Marianne on our show notes, which are at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. And um, Marianne, I want to thank you again. It's been a pleasure having you back and I wish you best of luck. Let us know if there's anything we can do to help, um, both at the federal level and the roadie. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, so you, you have a friend and a friend here, and we're happy to help anytime. So um, thanks again for coming. And um, if people want to find you, what's the best way to do so? Well, if they want to tweet at me, as many people do, uh, they can. <laughs> my, my handle there is MA underscore Franks. People can also reach me at marianne.franks at gmail.com. And um, last but not least, you are a, I'm going to mispronounce it, but you are a um, self-defense instructor um, in the Israeli um, self-defense. What is it called again? It's called Krav Maga. And how did you discover that? Well, it was actually, I was living in Southside Chicago, which was uh, nerve-wracking in some ways, and I I was having a conversation with a good friend who was a martial arts expert, and I had said, in kind of despair, I said, you know, I wish that I had ever learned uh, a form where I felt that I could defend myself, or if I wish there were some sort of martial art that didn't take, a, you know, 10 years to learn, and that would just teach me how to defend myself in everyday situations. And he said, there's this, this form called Krav Maga, and that's exactly what it does. And when I moved to Miami, I discovered that there was a studio in my neighborhood, and I thought, well, that's a pretty good sign, and and then learned that that's exactly what it is. It's really a matter of trying to, to survive if you're ever attacked. And so it's for very real-life, uh, practical scenarios to, t- to keep somebody from groping you to being able to disarm somebody with a weapon. So critics out there, listen. <laughs> <laughs> You do not want to mess with Marianne. So, but it's been a pleasure having you, and best of luck to you. And um, hopefully, we can get the federal bill passed next year. Let's hope so. Thank you so much. Thank you, and thank you for listening. This has been Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center. Um, check us out at internetlawcenter.net. And yes, we do handle revenge porn cases. Join us next week for another edition of Cyberlaw Business Report right here on Cranberry.fm. Have a great week. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry News Marketing and Cranberry.fm. Rebroadcasts or retransmission of this content without proper consent is prohibited. Get everything for your next roofing project at Menards. Your roof is the first line of defense against the elements. Owens Corning Shingles are designed to offer long-lasting performance while providing ultimate protection. They have a limited lifetime warranty and up to a 130-mile-per-hour wind warranty. Choose from over 40 options designed to protect your home for years to come. Say big on Shingles at Menards. And don't forget to check out our weekly ad on Menards.com. Say big money at when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.